Hello, welcome to the sixth episode of the 21cc podcast, brought to you by the Chartered Institute of Building. I'm Rod Sweet, editor of Global Construction Review. We're going deep this month. We're going to hear from an independent new home snagger, a defectorist, one of a growing number of entrepreneurs taking on the house building industry's defect epidemic. Some of them laugh because of disbelief or nerves. Some of them cry genuinely because it's the biggest investment of their life. And some of them get so angry, they march around to the sales while I'm still in the property. And we discuss whether the industry itself is somehow broken with Professor Stuart Green of the University of Reading. And I'm afraid the harbingers of modernization are directly implicated in the failings that we see happening around us today. Justin Stanton will be here to explain what smart objects are. But first... As I got older, Dad's moods from what he was dealing with internally escalated and it was really, he, he was really difficult to live with. It's safe working at height week. We tend to think of falls from height in terms of statistics, how many injured or dead there are in a year and whether that number is going up or down. But behind the numbers, in poorly managed situations, split-second decisions lead to devastated lives, as construction management's Christina Lago found out. On the 3rd of January 1993, Jason Anker was working as a labourer for his father-in-law's small roofing company. After finishing an unplanned job to fix a leaking roof, he went down an unsupported ladder, which slipped, making him fall three metres down. At the hospital, Jason received the devastating news that he would never be able to walk again. 30 years ago this year, Dad was a 23-year-old. He was actually in a job that he didn't really like um, on a construction site. Small team, and on the day of his accident, he chose to do something unsafe. Um, He went up an unsupported ladder and subsequently fell and broke his back, which then he was told he'll spend the rest of his life in a wheelchair and he won't be able to walk again. Abby Taylor is Jason's daughter. She was only three when her dad had his accident and she grew up seeing the huge impact it had on his life, both physically and mentally. For dad, obviously, as a 23-year-old young male, It was a massive impact, one, getting used to life in a wheelchair. Especially, he was a massive football fan. He was part of a football team. So huge obstacles that he was having to get in physically. A lot of stuff that you wouldn't even think comes with being in a wheelchair. Dad was also told he was double incontinent. So everything, he has to wear a bag even now. Mentally, it had a massive effect as well. Back then, mental health wasn't as prevalent as it is now, wasn't ever spoken about. So instead of sharing it and speaking to how he was actually feeling, Dad quickly became very depressed and turned, sadly, to drugs and alcohol. Abby says that this situation escalated over the years and Jason ended up having a drug overdose, which left him in a coma for 17 days. On day 15... The doctors asked the family to turn the life support machine off. Luckily for my dad, my granddad said no, and he did eventually wake up. But then he was, he didn't think it could get worse than it was before, but he actually, it, is, it, it was similar to having a stroke. So he was having to learn to speak again, um, sort of eat. And he st- still has issues with his, his speech and that today when, when you listen to him. He's got better, but he can talk really quickly and s- slur his words quite often. But Jason's accident not only had a life-changing impact on him, 
but also on the family and Abby? For me personally, I spent a lot of time, I did live with my dad. Uh, my brother lived with my mum. But I can just remember spending a lot of time with my nan and granddad and my auntie. And I was always told I was very, <laughs> looking back now, I was very shy and not an affected child, but it was it was impacting my life at school. It was hard to live with. I mean, until I was 18 and dad, my dad first started doing these safety talks, I never actually understood or knew what had happened and what I'd, what he had been through. So for me, that was a big learning curve because me growing up, dad was just always in a wheelchair. It was sort of the known. So it wasn't ever anything different for me. But then as I got older, sort of going to secondary school and having friends and wanting a social life, dad's moods from what he was dealing with internally escalated and it, it was really he he was really difficult to live with obviously he's still drinking too much just not dealing with what he was going through basically and that vented in other ways so much so that when I was 15 I moved I moved to live with my mum something that I absolutely didn't want to do I'd lived with my dad my whole life but he was that hard to live with and deal with that I made that decision which was awful because I knew how dad needed me at that time but I couldn't I couldn't be the one to for him. In 2009, Jason became a health and safety speaker, going up and down the country sharing the impact that his workplace accident had on himself, his family and friends. I think from when he started doing these safety talks, he massively changed his life because he was actually having saying it out loud and having these conversations. But it's only since I had my first daughter, she's now six, that he massively turned his life around so he doesn't drink anymore just dealing with his everyday mental health and well-being which has eased my anxiety for sure because I mean that that followed us around every day I try and say sometimes it's not always the big things that you think affect you it's just going out for a Sunday dinner or going shopping and think or oh, should we go and have some lunch and then not being able to get in somewhere because of the steps it hits home and it's all about dad's wheelchair and And it all comes back to that five-second decision he made on that day. Two years later, in 2011, Jason set up Proud to be Safe, a company of motivational speakers giving talks around safety, health and well-being. Abby now works with her dad and is the managing director of Proud to be Safe, as well as a speaker herself. When dad first started doing these, I I had another full-time job and he kept asking me to come and work for him and I first went to watch him on site. There's a site in London. And when I was sat watching the audience and I watched what he was doing and the sort of how hard it was for him to tell the story for one and share that such personal detail and hardship, when they come out and they sort of sat there thinking, oh, this is another just another safety brief or... And their attitude towards the end of the session when they're all leaning forward and they're so engaged and oh my God, what have I just listened to? And I got it straight away. It's not about us. It's about this not happening to anybody else. And that's what drives me anyway. It motivates me every day that if we can help, we used to say at least one person, but it's everyone that we speak to. If we can just change one little thing or mindset, then what we're doing is worth it. Abby says that it's essential that workers report on safe situations on sites. If something is not right, speak up. You've got to get it in your head that you're doing it for you and your family at home 
what would you and your family go through if that happened to you today? Not always the massive big accidents that that can have the huge effects. It might not, you might not end up in a wheelchair, but you might severely damage your leg that you can't then go and play football anymore, which is, that's your hobby. That's what you love. So quite a lot of the time we speak to endless people where they say, oh, they won't listen. I think they, they will. Nine times out of 10, the company wants you to do that. Communication, I think, can lack sometimes. And I think that's, for me, that's the main thing, just having that open conversations. Because quite a lot of the time, my dad said recently, even if, sadly, someone had spoken up on the day of his accident, it might have stopped him having the accident that day. But he still had things that were going on in his life that weren't being dealt with. So the next day, he'd probably have still come to work in the same state of mind. And he could have then potentially had another accident or caused an accident on a different day. Sharing and speaking up on all aspects, health and safety, your well-being, anything is going to make a massive impact for everybody. This year's Safe Working at High Week takes place from the 6th until the 12th of November. To find out more about this campaign, go to safeworkingathighweek.com. Thank you, Christina, and a big thanks to Abby and her dad, Jason, for helping us understand this important issue. Smart objects are an essential part of 3D modelling, but what are they, and how can an object be smart? Justin's here to shed some light. Welcome to 21cc's Jargon Buster. I'm Justin Stanton, editor of BIM Plus, and each month 21cc tackles an acronym or bit of industry slang related to construction and its modernisation. This month we're tackling smart objects and their natural consequence, smart object libraries. Smart objects are also known as BIM objects and smart components. They're an essential part of 3D modelling. Smart objects are digital representations of construction products and materials that are used to create the 3D model. An object contains not only the 3D geometry of the product or material, but also its classification, performance metrics and expected lifetime, among other structured data. According to the Cohesive BIM Wiki, part of the Designing Buildings Wiki, there are two basic types of object, component and layered. A component represents building products that have a distinct geometrical shape, such as furniture, windows, doors, equipment, etc., A layered object is a product that does not have a fixed shape or size, such as flooring, carpets, insulation materials, ceiling materials, etc. Objects can also be classed as generic and specific. Generic or library objects are used during the initial design as placeholders, expressing the need for a specific object to be selected at a later date. Specific or manufacturer objects are those that represent products specific to a manufacturer. In a recent survey of nearly 600 specifiers by NBS, the vast majority said that they need BIM objects. They want the objects to be of a high quality, rich with data, but not overburdened with unnecessary complex geometric information that creates unnecessarily large data files. The respondents also wanted objects to include environmental product declarations. The existence of smart objects is a boon to specifiers and designers as smart object libraries can be created. A library of smart objects allows users to use and reuse standardised and approved BIM content, saving time, eliminating repetitive design tasks and paving the way for component-based design. Component-based design is not new, according to Claire Rutkowski at Bentley Systems. 
The Romans figured out their two or three best designs and used them repeatedly to build new cities and fortifications across their empire. After all, why invent the wheel every time? She told Bim Plus earlier this year. Claire added, If you are building a road, your components might be streetlights, curbs, drainage ditches and manhole covers, anything that is repetitive and standard for street construction. Each component encapsulates the functionality, behaviours and dimensions of a self-contained reusable object. With these components easily in reach, you can simply cut and paste them into your design. Think of it as a library of templated building blocks that already hold the best practices and knowledge from the designers who created them, helping you capture and perpetuate their expertise and experience. If there's a bit of industry jargon or an acronym that you'd like 21cc to tackle, drop us a line at 21cc at adampublishing.co.uk. Thanks, Justin. I'm glad you got the Romans in. Now, the problem of badly built new houses has been with us for a long time, but recently construction people have begun to respond to this dismal market of misery by offering support to unsuspecting buyers. Let's hear now from one of these defect detectives. The waste, that there's so many to list. One comes into mind from yesterday's inspection. Where in the garage you have what's called block pillars that support the brickwork, stop it from bellying, and they're tied in with brick ties. Now, this one wasn't tied in, and when I'd give it a little pull, the wall was rocking. So that wall could have fell down at any time, and whoever was on there wouldn't have stood a chance. So I went and grabbed the site team. We took it down. They're going to investigate why that happened, and they're going to get rebuilt properly. That's Will Rudd, Managing Director of Snag Surveys, one of a new breed of companies offering to inspect the newly built house you've bought to find out what's wrong with it. He used to work for a house builder as a site manager, but so great is the demand from angry and despairing buyers, he decided to branch out and become a defectorist. Business is booming. I probably do about between five to ten inspections a week, and I'd probably say I've come across... Two, two series problems every single week. Average defects, I'd say anything from around 140 to 300 every single property. Um, I very rarely get below 140 issues, and they are all exceeding tolerance and do need rectifying. Sometimes he inspects houses that are still being built, if the developer agrees. Other times, he investigates after handover to check against the buyer's warranty. That means that handling strong emotions is part of his job. We try to explain every issue as best as we can. You know, minor stuff like you may have what's called shrinkage, which is cracking. Now, we try and explain that is a very quick fix. It's just aesthetic purposes, and it's very normal to happen a new property and not to worry. However, if there is a big problem, we kind of sit them down, talk to them of what the options are and, and what the next steps are. Their reactions are all different. Some of them laugh because of disbelief or nerves. Some of them cry genuinely because it's the biggest investment of their life and that should not have happened with the the quality checks that are in place. And some of them get so angry, they make phone calls or they march around to the sales while I'm still in the property. Warranties typically cover interior cosmetic issues for the first two years and structural issues for 10 years. Will says it's usually at the end of that longer period that the big issues emerge. 
you're going to have subsiding with the structural side, cavity trays. If they're not in, or you've got what we see a lot of fake wheat vents, then the moisture hasn't been able to egress the cavity, which then means you've got a lot of moisture in your cavity. And where there's moisture in your cavity, mold and damp will grow. And that's one of our big problems that years nine and 10, the properties are getting mold and damp around the property because there's not enough ventilation and there's not enough positions to egress the moisture. Fake weep vents. I felt I had to ask Will a dumb question. Why are so many houses being built badly? Put it bluntly, we're just, you know, a gang of men or women in a field building. Mistakes happen. It's all built by hand. There's probably over 100,000 components that go into a house. At some point, one of them are not going to be correct. The levels of quality checks to the build program don't allow you to check as much as you should. Whereas if you have 30, 40 plots and build, you can't be checking 30, 40 plots every day of work. So it's the quality checks that fail to identify what is going on. That's the biggest issue. The fix to it, for me, is relatively easy. They used to have the old school Clark works. I believe new home snagging is kind of like that. An independent snagging services that will come into your property, Jordan build and snag your property along the way. Will admits this isn't great for the home buyer, who now has to pay extra just to ensure they're getting what they thought they'd already paid for. So he's trying to persuade developers to hire him as an independent quality checker of the kind they seem happy to do without. I mean, some of the houses that they're selling are 600, 700,000. I mean, for what we charge, very, very minimal, would not cost the builder anything because we would in turn save them a lot of money and would save them reputation, and that's priceless. We're not here to hate the industry. We're fighting for our industry because there's certain people and companies that have lost sight in why we actually build homes, and it was for the homeowners. It's not for the big corporation money and fighting for programs and people's bonuses. It was to take pride in a job and hand over a product to a person that's dreamt of that house for the rest, for the whole life. I wish Will luck, but I also find it strange that poor quality seems to be such an issue when house builders' profits and shareholder dividends are soaring. Nearly four years ago, in February 2020, Housing Minister Robert Jenrick said that a new role, the new homes ombudsman, would be created. This person would have statutory powers to award compensation and to order builders to fix shoddy work. He said new laws would compel builders to comply, but it hasn't quite worked out like that. In November 2022, a private company won a contract to run the new homes ombudsman service with a stated goal of holding house builders accountable for what they build under a new homes quality code. But it's up to house builders whether they sign up to the code or not. And in its 2023 annual review, the Ombudsman Service didn't say how many complaints it had handled. So it remains to be seen how effective it'll be. Badly built housing leads us to a bigger question. Is the wider UK construction industry itself broken in some fundamental way? I ask because in the third quarter of this year, construction led all other sectors in having the highest number of companies facing so-called critical financial distress, according to Begbie's trainer. That's about 6,000 companies and a 46% rise on the second quarter of the year. It's true that construction is always the canary in the coal mine in economic downturns, but something else seems to be going on. 
The chaos caused by reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete, or rack, in schools this autumn made me stop and ask, with real unease, what's next? Especially after the collapse of Carillion in 2018, the Grenfell Tower catastrophe in 2017, and the emergency closure of 17 defective Edinburgh schools in 2016. I wanted to run this by Professor Stuart Green from the University of Reading. He began his career as a civil engineer before moving to academia, and he's studied the workings of the industry extensively. The second edition of his 2011 book, Making Sense of Construction Improvement, is due out in January, updated to cover the years of austerity, Brexit, and the disasters I just mentioned. Stuart is passionate about this, so hold on to your hats. The title of the session is kind of, is the industry broken? And to answer that question, I need to kind of go back a little bit in time and I need to kind of think about if it is broken and clearly it's less than perfect and we have to do better. There's no, there's, there's no kind of room for complacency. And the strap line from Mark Farmer, uh, Modernise or Die, is a marvellous strap line in terms of generating headlines, but it isn't very useful in determining how we might meaningfully move forward. The reality is that many contractors have progressively over the course of the last four decades remove themselves from taking responsibility for the physical task of construction. The business model over that period has changed fundamentally such that it no longer relies on improving productivity. The risk of poor productivity is simply passed down to the supply chain. So the dominant business model of what we now refer to as tier one contractors is primarily an exercise in contract trading. They don't do construction. They do contract trading. That's what they do. They're set up to get the money in as early as possible and pay it out to the supply chain as late as possible. And contractors like to whinge about their low levels of profitability as measured against turnover. But what they don't talk about is return on capital employed. Okay, and they seek to maximise that return on capital employed. And that measure is much more useful as a, as a, a basis for explaining their commercial behaviours in the marketplace. Stuart traces the beginning of this era to Friday the 15th of October 1982, when the so-called Group of Eight held a meeting with the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. The Group of Eight thought of itself as construction's representative body at the time. It was made up of the main professional institutions, industry associations and trade unions. They wanted to press the government for help in the early 1980s recession because governments had always done that before, commissioning public housing and other schemes to help the industry get through downturns while maintaining a baseline of skills and capacity and to guard against high unemployment. Stewart calls this demand management, as in managing fluctuations in demand for construction caused by the economic cycle. And of course, they got a very clear message from Margaret Thatcher, who apparently talked for the entire duration of the meeting. And she sent them away with a flea in the rear, saying that this is the reality. If you can't cope with this kind of this task of delivering what we need, then we'll bring overseas contractors in and they will. And so they went back to their boardrooms and they embarked upon a different course of action, which was the adoption of the strategic model of structural flexibility, the privileging of the ability to expand and contract 
painlessly in accordance with fluctuations in demand. You know, the industry's got the message that the days of demand management uh, to help the construction sector invest in its future, those days were over and the construction sector was on its own. And that restructuring is very clear in the in the national statistics. You can see it quite clearly over that period. Increasing reliance on subcontracting in the sector. You see the growth of firms that are classed as specialist contractors and the decline of firms that are labelled as main trades. You also see this significant growth in self-employment. And so quite quickly, you get to the stage where very close to 50% of the industry's workforce uh, are nominally self-employed. And that's been incentivized through the uh, tax and national insurance system. It hasn't just happened. It's been kind of incentivized. The remarkable thing is that all these various changes and initiatives were done in the name of modernization. And so you ask me if the industry is broken now. Well, I would reply, uh, the industry has been very successful at adapting to a changing policy environment. Different governments are forever demanding different things of the sector. And the construction sector, with its model of structural flexibility, is able to respond to those kind of requirements. But of course, when we talk about the things that don't work, what we actually end up talking about are the unintended consequences of previous initiatives done in the name of modernization. The loss of the apprenticeship system, the lack of investment in skills, the impossibility of construction firms in this highly competitive market of investing in their long-term future. Those firms who invest in new technologies actually carry overheads and the market is such that they cannot carry those overheads. So you've got this kind of market that's distinguished by fluctuations in demand, the economic cycle, and compulsory competitive tendering, uh, largely introduced on the back of the pulse and corruption crisis of the early 1970s. Okay, because theoretically, it's a clean way of ensuring that you're getting the best market price. And the accumulative effect of that is that firms can't carry the overheads. Firms have no certainty of what project they're going to have on the books next year. Fluctuating demand, vagaries of the competitive tendering situation. Again, it's a clear disincentive to invest in their own future. It's a clear disincentive to employ people directly. It's a clear disincentive to invest in new technology. It's a clear disincentive to invest in the workforce. And these are the things that we now lament as uh, the problems with traditional ways of working. But in truth, these are the externalities of the path that we've travelled. And I'm afraid the harbingers of modernization are directly implicated in the failings that we see happening around us today. I think there's some very clear things that can be done. I cannot understand why people don't use standard forms of contract. The idea of a standard form of contract is just about dead. Clients amend them continuously on a project-by-project basis. And of course, over time, design responsibility has been pushed down the supply chain, such that specialist subcontractors are now expected to carry a degree of design responsibility. 
but the contracts within which they are employed vary all the time. So there's a complete lack of clarity in terms of what they are responsible for and what they're not responsible for. And in the light of the Hackett report and the building safety crisis, that strikes me as a real, real big issue. And so surely, surely there should be a strong imperative on banning the use of heavily amended forms of contract for the sake of it. Payment practices is another one. Everybody talks about payment practices. Everyone agrees that something should be done. Nothing ever happens. We get warm words reheated time over and time over again. And yet still the payment practices are a nightmare. The government's recently walked away from the idea of project bank accounts. You know, meanwhile, all these guys at the end of the supply chain you know, are struggling to, to, to stay afloat. If they don't sign this extremely onerous form of subcontract, they make the argument that somebody else will. You know, they have to have to sign it. They have no choice. Otherwise, they have no business. If they have a project on the books, at least they have a chance of staying in business. To close us off, would you say that you are mostly pessimistic or optimistic about the future? Let's say I've just begun a career and I have my eye on a route to management. Do you have anything good to say to me? Yes, I have. Yeah, absolutely. I have. Let me say this. I'm consistently impressed with the caliber of our people I meet working in the construction sector. Right. Despite everything I've talked about, despite all the nonsenses they have to deal with, they get things built and they get things built often in fabulous ways. I take my inspiration from the people who work in the sector. They deserve better policymakers. They deserve better leadership. And of course, I would be positive about careers in the sector. This is a fabulous kind of sector. It's so important. It's so exciting. The ability to build things is central to the human condition. The people I'm critical of are the people who position themselves as spokespersons for the future, the policy makers, the people who work in the construction sector are deserving of much better leadership than they get. That's all we have time for this month. We hope you found it interesting. If you like the podcast, tell others by rating it wherever you found it. Give us a mention on social media with the hashtag 21ccpodcast. Email us on 21cc at atompublishing.co.uk. Thanks so much for listening.